going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. And if you guys are like, hey, I need to renew my license pretty soon, got good news because we have once again partnered up with farmconfreece.com. And so this episode is going to count towards ACPE accredited continuing education as long as you're a member of their platform. So FarmCon basically has set it up so that you can get one hour of continuing education. And we're going to try to do this maybe even bi-weekly going forward. So hopefully this is something if you like it, we can keep on going. This is our seventh episode with them. And you know, in order to actually earn the credit, you do have to be a member of their website. The link that you can follow after listening will be in the show notes below, and that will take you to a uh, post-test and evaluation for the activity, um, and then just make sure you fill out that information, pass the test. Um, there's going to be a password to actually access the test, and that's going to be SAFETY, S-A-F-E-T-Y, all caps. And uh, again, that's for free CE members, and um, you know it's the, the, the CE option through the podcast is available through the uh the unlimited membership benefits. Um, there's no additional cost for that. Um, and so if you're already a member, definitely go check that out and claim the credit. If you're not a free CE member already, then definitely go ahead and check out their uh, library. They have all kinds of different monographs and live uh, CE. They have um, recorded video um, lectures where it's more like a lecture style. And obviously, uh, Cole and I are also there now. So this will be episode seven for them. Like I said, uh, if you go in, uh, you're not a member and you want to sign up, um, Put in the uh, discount code PODCAST2022 at checkout, and you'll get 15% off the unlimited membership. And uh, then there's also going to be a link in the show notes that will take you right to um, that screen as well. So without further ado, Cole, what are we talking about today? Well, we're talking about a few things. So usually we focus on one, right? We have 17 things we to We have talk lots about. of things. Now, it, we're um, mainly, I guess, the overarching theme is going to be medication safety. Um, and then we're also going to include special populations, and that's medication safety and special populations. We're going to start off with some basics, some metabolism, um, pharmacology basics, because we want to remind people of some things um, related to cytochrome P450 and p glycoprotein. And then we'll hit um, some other things like uh, pregnancy, bleed risk, um, kidney function, that sort of thing. So uh, I think it'll be a very lively Interesting one. Very lively. Speaking of the CE, though, we just got the emails in South Carolina that our um, licenses are coming up due. And I, if I don't set a reminder on my phone, I'm just going to completely forget. Yeah, I, I'm always uh, in the same boat. I usually wait till April 15th. <laughs> so you pay the late fees because you have to pay Is it April 1st or whatever it is? <laughs> it's, like, it's usually a week before it's due, whatever right. that day is. I right. think I would remember. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Cole's right. So if you're in South Carolina listening to us, oh yeah, definitely check out Free CE. Yep. Because I mean, what better way to get uh, Free CE or to get CE credit other than listening to listening to the us. soothing voice of me and Cole um, <laughs> and AJ sometimes, or yeah, and AJ when he decides to talk our executive producer, not just a producer, executive producer, <laughs> right, AJ? Big difference. Big difference. All right, so let's start off, I guess, with the basics. Yeah. Um, so you know. Metabolism um, and you know drug uh, CYP450 um, metabolism in particular is something that as a pharmacist you've had probably more than you ever cared to deal with, but you know it's good to review. Plus, uh, I believe um, some of our nursing colleagues may check this out as well, and so maybe they haven't um, again been hit over the head with uh, as much pharmacology as the pharmacists maybe have, and so this is a good review if nothing else. 
So um, to kind of just we're going to keep it basic with this. But um, when we think of you know drug metabolism in particular, we're oftentimes thinking of well, when it's taken orally, um, especially when it comes to our drug-drug interactions and whatnot. And so when you swallow a, a tablet, um, you know it gets into the stomach, um, you know, and then from there it's going to go into the the small bowel, and um, you know during the it's kind of you know transit through the intestinal tract is where it gets first absorbed um, into uh, the portal vein to go to the the liver where it's going to be then um, you know sort of you know undergoes this this sip uh, metabolism or various other um, phase one and phase two um, you know metabolism processes so there's like glucuronidation and sulfation all kinds of different things and uh, and so basically that process there is what we're you know, where a lot of our drug drug interactions happen. Um, some of it happened in the gut as well as it's being absorbed. In fact, three, three, um, three, eight, four, which is a very big drug interaction is actually in the, primarily in the gut. And so liver and gut are where we're thinking about those reactions, but it's basically those metabolism process and how, how much of the drug is, is changed or broken down or made inactive. Um, and how much of it actually reaches systemic circulation, um, is, is, you know, the important thing when it comes to clinical medicine. And so when it comes to, you know, a, a certain dose of a medication, they, they pick that dose because they know based on kinetic studies and all that, how much they can kind of expect to get, you know, through that first pass metabolism, which is what that's referred to going through the liver and then, um, you know, into systemic circulation. So, um, you know, the, a lot of the hard work has actually been done for us already when it comes to the dosing and things. However, um, obviously when we put some of these medications together, that's when we can, um, you know, run into a problem. Right. Put some together or even have people with altered genetics that might, uh, might yes. we'll get into all that. Um, you were a biochem degree. I you? was, yes. Mm. See, I was not. So I have bad memories of a lot of the stuff you just talked about in, we called it farm chem, but medicinal chemistry, first semester of pharmacy school. It was like one of my first really bad grades since entering college. And, um, yeah, it was a slippery slope after that. Well, I remember like rough, like barely talking about SIP interaction. We spent a lot more time with like the biochem stuff that we don't ever actually do anything true, with. True, yes, true. I, I don't know what it was, but just the words were just not like sulfation, glucuronidation, all that stuff was phase one, phase two. Metabolism. Yeah, yeah. It just was not clicking. Not clicking. Me. It was just not clicking. But look at you now. Look at me now. You have a podcast. Uh, yeah, doesn't mean so. I know it any better, but yes, just kidding. Um, so <laughs> we're going to focus on. Um, the SIP interactions for a little bit. So the differences in the rate of metabolism of a drug can be due to interactions, like Mike said, genetics, like I said before, and we'll get into all of that. Um, so there's three primary things that a drug can be in relation to a cytochrome P450. They can be a substrate for it, um, they can be an inhibitor for it, and or an inhibitor for it, and they can be inducers of a SIP. Um, so we'll get into kind of the specifics of those as well, just so you have a good understanding of that. But induction and inhibition of um, a SIP can lead to the drug-drug interactions, the adverse effects, increased levels of one drug, decreased levels of a drug, um, that sort of thing. For example, herbal products, there's various ones out there. St. John's wort is probably the most common culprit, um, but it can greatly increase the metabolism of many orally administered drugs. So not only prescription medicines, OTC medicines, but herbal uh, supplements you want to be aware of for SIP interactions. And and just as a refresher, when we say substrate, we're talking about you know it's it's basically the what the enzyme is actually working on and metabolizing. So if we say the drug is a substrate of the SIP, it means that it's broken down and metabolized by that SIP. Yes. Um. So I, I don't know. We always got to use fancier words in, in science, so we call it substrate instead of the thing the enzyme works on. Target. But 
The target. target. Yeah, there you yeah, go. It's the target. Thank it's, you, it's what, I always think of them as, as puzzle pieces, and it's like the enzyme is one piece of the puzzle, and it fits nicely with whatever that drug is. And yeah. Metabolize. That's just like in the textbook, like the picture they show. That's why I imagine. Yeah. Well, <laughs> AJ, is it like that in real life? Yes, actually. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Good. Thank you, AJ. He verifies everything for us. He's our fact checker. Um, so when it comes to uh, inducers, um, you know, they basically when we're when we're talking about a active drug, so you take the drug, um, you know, orally, it's it's already in its active form to do its you know clinical effect on the body. Um, when you have that, you know, that's a substrate of a certain sip uh, or you know something else that's involved in metabolism, but sips primarily what we think of, um, and you give it with a, a drug that's an inducer of that same sip, you're basically increasing the degree of the drug metabolism, you know, the drug that's the substrate. You're increasing how quickly it's broken down. And so if, you know, we think about uh, like the serum concentrations of that drug, obviously we would expect them to be lower because once the drug's at steady state, um, you know, we don't expect anything to change as far as the, the metabolism. But if you also speed that metabolism up, it's going to be exiting the, the system much more um, quickly. And so like just a quick like clinical example, obviously, with like something like rifampin. We always know that that's got a lot of drug-drug interactions. But specifically, CYP2C9, um, it's an inducer of that enzyme, um, whereas warfarin is a substrate of 2C9. So if I'm giving warfarin and I have a – you know the therapeutic effect of that and the INRs between two and three or wherever my goal might be. And I give this inducer. Now all of a sudden it's going to be breaking down that, uh, that warfarin a lot quicker. And now it's not going to be in the system to actually thin the blood as much as we want. And so the patient could, uh, the, you know, whatever they're being treated for, um, either could their clot may not be taken care of, or they, they've avid, they could have a stroke. There's lots of, you know, obviously bad outcomes from that. Um, if you ever notice something like, um, like metoprolol succinate versus tartrate where the succinate is the ER. The reason why we have to have like a higher dose that's equivalent um, a lot of times, especially with Coreg, is actually comes from the manufacturer um, this way. So metoprolol is, uh, depending on which resource you look at, they may say they're one-to-one, but that's not quite true. Um, but uh, Coreg, I'll use that as a better example so that I don't get called out. Um, Coreg versus Coreg CR, the reason why we need higher doses of the extended release or the controlled release. Um, so for example, the 10 milligrams is equivalent to 3.125 twice a day. We need higher doses initially because that first pass metabolism is going to be breaking down and, and dissolving it. So it's, um, you know, it's going to take longer to get or longer to get through that first pass metabolism and all that. And so all of a sudden, if we just gave an inducer and it pushes that process further along, now we're going to have a lot more, um, drug kind of leaving the system and getting metabolized quicker and it's going to throw off our effects of the drug so yeah two examples is plenty Next. oh well i was going to give one more because oh please thinking, thinking of the the way that i always remember kind of the inducers and inhibitors and how it works is going back to ninth grade biology term uh equilibrium so on the left side i think of the enzymes on the right side i think of the studied amount of drug and what we know, if you take this dose in a regular person with the regular amount of activity of SIPs, then it's going to metabolize and excrete at this rate. So if we throw any wrench in the plan, it's going to throw off the equilibrium. So if we induce more SIPs, we're going to have higher SIP activity, which is going to decrease the right side, which would be the drug activity, and vice versa. If we're inhibiting the SIPs, it might increase the drug activity and throw it off its equilibrium. If we have other things that we'll talk about, like... Um, kidney or hepatic impairment or genetic issues, it can also throw off that equilibrium. 
So is three examples enough? Yeah. I might have I just given good. four examples in my one example. It might have been a two-parter, but that's okay. We'll <laughs> it, count it. There's I use a semicolon, though. Got it. So no periods. That's good. Um, Take people taking notes at home, semicolon. So um, speaking of the equilibrium, even amongst maybe a drug interaction, you can have an equilibrium. So you have to be cautious when you're removing drugs, too, that may be inducers or inhibitors, um, because that can throw off whatever drug level the patient was steady with if they had two medications that may have had some sort of drug interaction and they were getting some sort of therapeutic effect from that. If you remove one, then that's going to throw off the equilibrium as well. Um, along with that, prodrugs. So Mike mentioned drugs being in their active uh, active state and metabolized into their active state. So we have something called prodrugs, which is uh, the drug itself is not, nat is not in its active form. It has to be uh, metabolized or cleaved or whatever um, uh, in the body to its active form. So one example of that would be codeine. Codeine is inactive until it's converted to its active metabolite, which is morphine, among other metabolites, um, and that's how it works. So if you uh, inhibited, so if you used an inhibitor, it might decrease the level of the prodrug's active form. Um, so an exa another example could be clopidogrel, which is not active until um, it's a prodrug and it's not active until it's metabolized as well. So um, when we think of... Uh you know, Cole kind of hinted at this already, but um, some of the thing like uh, the genetic as aspect of it, where we talk about polymorphisms. Um, you, Cole, you didn't actually mention this no. already, right? Okay, I was looking ahead and I wasn't listening for a second. Just right, just uh, I just I spoiled a couple things, but I didn't actually talk about it. Okay, so. good deal, good deal. Um, but so genetic polymorphisms, uh, the two big ones we kind of think about is the ultra rapid metabolizers, um, or they're also known as like extensive metabolizers, where um, you know, the patient, it, 2D6 is usually a big culprit for this, where the patient's natural um, activity of 2D6 is, is uh, a lot more um, elevated or heightened, I guess you'd say. And so the patient is naturally going to metabolize drugs that are substrates of 2D6 much quicker than a patient who does not have this polymorphism. And um, that can definitely lead to, to problems with drug-drug um, interactions. Cole mentioned, uh, did you mention, did you say codeine already about the... I did mention the codeine. But um, in the, with the ultra-rapid metabolizer? No. Okay, so that's a, one thing that we know it's a pro-drug, and so it needs to be kind of converted into to morphine. But with uh, somebody who's a nat like a, um, a rapid metabolizer, um, naturally that process could happen a lot quicker, and they're going to have a lot more morphine in their system than we anticipated. So um, that's one of the reasons why we don't really like to give this to uh, children usually um, under 18 because especially in under 12 for sure, definitely really under 18 is probably a better, much safer rule of thumb. But uh, that's you know really because we don't really know if they have that polymorphism or not. And there have been case reports of um, you know newborns and stuff having issues, uh, not even just newborns, but young kids having uh, um, you know respiratory depression and whatnot when given a dose of codeine because they're their morphine concentration goes up significantly. Right. Um, also, there's poor, poor metabolizers. That, that's another genetic polymorphism. So uh, obviously, a poor metabolizer is not going to be breaking down and getting rid of the drug as quick as we think. So those patients are going to have a much higher instance of toxicity or any sort of adverse effect that could come about from having the drug uh, high, concentration higher in the serum. And then, you know, the other thing besides those, you know, the gen genetic polymorphisms, which I am kind of excited about with all the pharmacogenetic, uh, you know, advances that we've been making, I'm, I think that's going to be a huge um, part of a lot of different areas of medicine here pretty soon. Um, and I know there's a huge push for some it. of you are deep in that space already, but I think that's going to be something that's got a lot of opportunity for pharmacists, especially. 
but uh, besides the genetic component, we also have diet and lifestyle factors that we do got to think about. You know, the one that everybody can quote is the grapefruit juice, um, which, you know, I, I used to always joke, like, who the heck drinks grapefruit juice? And then I got called out by a couple of my students, like, oh, yeah, I like grapefruit juice. <laughs> like, ah, shoot. So uh, for those of you who drink grapefruit juice, obviously, we all know that that's an interaction with with CYP3A4 that, you know, doesn't seems a little odd, but yes, a drink can definitely cause a, an issue. Um, and then uh, cigarettes, um, SIP 182, also an interaction there. So if somebody is, um, you know, starts smoking randomly for some reason, or usually it's the case of them stopping, uh, they, they stop smoking. Um, that's when our, uh, the, that SIP interaction could potentially be an issue. Um, and so, yeah, the, there's lots of things to consider. I will say at the same time, I don't want drug-drug interactions to seem like, oh, this is the scariest thing ever. If you see anything that pops up as an interaction, that's it. Cut it off. I mean, one of the things, obviously, as pharmacists that we do all the time is <laughs> hit that override button yeah, because we know whether it's clinically relevant or not or, or what things to kind of monitor for and, and make sure that the patient's still getting the therapeutic response and lack of adverse effects that we're hoping for. So I think it's, but it's important to review because a lot of us have SIP fatigue, I mean, mm -hmm. override fatigue easily, but then we also will see like, oh, uh, this interacts with moderate inhibitors of SIP3 or 4. And we're like, okay, well, override or whatever. But um, you, you can make a decision, especially if you're initiating a drug or making a recommendation about whether it's clinic, clinically relevant. And if you're looking up an interaction checker like LexiComp, it's going to spit out a, a letter, a C, D, whatever, um, as far as how significant it thinks the drug interaction is. Um, if you click into it, you can read some additional information as well that they'll pull from the labels. And sometimes, you know, it's a, a C or a D, but they give recommendations about adjusted dosing or different dosing intervals or whatever. And so you can look into it a little deeper and maybe come up with good recommendations. And they also will tell you more information about where that actual rating came from. And right. usually it's not all the drugs in that class. It's usually a couple of them that have been studied. Yep. And so like with macrolides and things like that, that's a really important concept too, is not just because it comes up with interaction. Um, it's being you know, kind of pinging that off the class. It's not necessarily the data is, you know, doesn't necessarily support that particular drug necessarily being an interaction. And so the interaction checker, it all comes from, this is so, so weird once you understand like background, it all comes from the package insert. So if you go into the package insert and scroll down, you can find a long list of classes, specific drugs, whatever, that they have had to put into the package insert to get it approved. And I mean, I won't say all because I don't know exactly how they do their algorithms, but the majority of what you're looking at when you run those interaction checks is it's just running it against the knowledge that it has about its uh, FDA label and then spitting out of that, that information for you to read conveniently right there. Um, so to, it's also not all inclusive, you know, right. because the FDA approval may not have all the information that you that might come out after approval and that sort of thing. So yep, yep. I definitely have run interaction checks on things that I was sure interact and it didn't pop up. So yeah. Yeah. Or, or I, I had this one interaction in my head the whole time that I actually read the data that Lexicomp has on where that came from and I'll go, Oh, that's not that important. Right. <laughs> so yeah, sometimes it looks scary, but if you look into it and use some clinical decision-making, it's not that scary. Yep. So the other, the other big kind of uh, drug drug interaction that we like to think about is the P glycoprotein. Um, so, you know, the metabolism part of it is, you know, one thing, but really P glycoprotein is more absorbed, like more interested in the, the absorption side of kinetics. And so um, it's basically the drug that uh, when a, as it's moving through the, the small intestine and, and, 
you know, moving towards being excreted in the feces, the P-glycoprotein is the pump that um, as the drug is absorbed, that P-glycoprotein catches some of that and brings it right back out of, um, you know, that first pass metabolism path and spits it right back into the intestines to push it towards the, you know, the, uh, the end of the um, GI system and turn it into feces. And so the, that process of how much of the drug is actually reabsorbed um, or re-excreted, I should say, um, from uh, P-glycoprotein is important because some actual drugs are interact or, or inhibitors or inducers of that particular um, pump. And so it's the same concept as you have an inhibitor of that, you're going to have more drug in central circulation because less of it is being dumped out of that first pass metabolism um, back into the GI tract. And then uh, if it's an inducer, you're going to have more that's um, uh, put back into the small intestine. And so that's going to have less systemic circulation available. And so it is important to kind of consider that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, peak like a protein is a separate separate area, but it's still just as important when it comes to drug-drug interactions. Yeah, and conceptually, I think it's important to realize, to understand the difference between metabolism and excretion, because we've all heard the ADME acronym, absorption, distribution, metabolism, excretion. So we've gone into a lot of detail on metabolism, and then we just touched on excretion a little bit. But they happen in two different areas. And so sometimes they can kind of seem like they overlap as far as just getting rid of the drug. That's my understanding, right? You understand that it gets rid of the active drug. Um, but metabolism, the way I like to think about it is it's not really getting rid of it as far as it leaving your body. It's just taking what's already there and breaking it down into an inactive form. The excretion is actually pumping maybe active drug out of your body or out of a place where it could be effective and then out of your body. Um, so it's a little bit different. Yeah. A lot of times it's just making the drug more water soluble, getting ready for the kidneys to turn it into urine Yep. or put it in the urine. But, yep. uh, yeah, that's a good point. Well done, Cole. Well said. Thank you. I'm all about the analogies. Today. Yeah, that's good. Good stuff. A lot of energy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, that's, you know, some basic metabolism stuff. Obviously, definitely uh, encourage you guys to kind of look into that deeper if you're not super familiar with it or if you haven't thought about it in a long time. But uh, let's get into some kind of patient populations that safety is an important aspect of, especially when it comes to selecting pharmacotherapy options. Um, and the number one thing I think that uh, I always think about and worry about really is, is patients who are pregnant. Yes. Uh, because not a, I, I never want to make a mistake with anything or any recommendation that I've given or event that I've started on somebody, but uh, pregnant patients, I am always like triple check things because mm -hmm. I'm terrified of you know, doing something. If wrong I in that ever area. got a question like, is this, I'm pregnant, is this okay in pregnancy? I would say, even if I was very confident, I would say yes, but hold, I'm going to look it up because I would always double check yeah. before I let them leave. It's probably a good policy. Unless yeah. you're an OB, that's probably a good policy. Yes. And even then, double check yourself. So um, the number one thing to kind of, con I, well, the, one of the most important things I should say, I don't know if there's a rating system in place, <laughs> but uh, one of the most important number things. Number 33, think, most yeah, important. <laughs> is, uh, um, medications that have a teratogenic effect or teratogens, um, which is basically just any agent that can potentially halt a pregnancy or, or cause any sort of like fetal malformations. Uh, and so, you know, teratogenic drugs obviously need to be discontinued immediately if uh, a patient finds out that they're pregnant um, or in an ideal situation, we want to kind of stop those ahead of time if we know that the patient is actively, you know, trying to, to conceive. And so um, we can, there's plenty of other medications that we could possibly switch to depending on what drug that the patient's on, but we've really got to keep that in mind because they can be potentially very harmful to the, the fetus. Um, so some, you know, drugs that we 
in some cases have to kind of you know use uh, in very very special cases um, that we still know can cause some harm. Um, you know, they those situations are out there, and uh, it's really going to be between the obviously the OB, the the, the mother, um, and anybody else involved with with her care, because obviously we don't want any negative outcomes with the mother, but we also want to protect the fetus as well. And so, um, so there's cases like the one I always think of is um, lamotrigine. Uh, lamotrigine during pregnancy definitely carries some um, congenital risks. Um, however, seizures can also cause issues. So if a patient is tried other medications and whatnot, and this was a not planned pregnancy, and it's kind of like you're already in the middle of, you know, the prenatal care, uh, it, you got to make that choice of, okay, do we now, do we try another agent and they potentially start having seizures again? There's, you know, that's a discussion that I think everyone has to kind of make for themselves, but the explaining the risks to the mother, I think is a very important piece. Uh, and like they are a very active uh, decision, part of the decision making process, and that's not just us using our clinical judgment in this in this regard. Yeah, seizures uh, and pregnancy are a difficult. Um, yeah, thing. it's a difficult thing to treat, I should say. Yes. Um, so there are some kind of key drugs that we um, think of and should be red flags to you anytime you think that a patient might be pregnant or is at risk of becoming pregnant um, if you see them. So the big one that everybody thinks of is uh, with acne isotretinoin because it has a ple- uh, an eye pledge program, a REMS program, um, uh, because of its teratogenic risk, but also for acne, the topical retinoids like tezerotene uh, um, is teratogenic as well. Um, some others that you might um, consider, like one to consider to have the old category X for pregnancy, or now we just say do not use in pregnancy, would be fluoroquinolones, so do not use those in pregnancy. Other ones to consider would be tetracyclines, and also metronidazole, um, but specifically it's contraindicated in the first uh, trimester. Some others that are uh, heavy hitters would be um, statins, which are very common drugs. A lot of these cardiovascular-related drugs are very common. Um, statins, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, um, also alaskirin, and then Entresto, so Cubitrol, Valsartan, um, Atenolol as well. All of those are, are um, have teratogenic effects. And then hormones um, you want to be cautious with or avoid, um, like estradiol and progesterone progesterone as well. And then just some other kind of miscellaneous medications, um, lithium, methotrexate, um, topiramate, divalproex, hydroxyurea, um, paroxetine we can throw in there. Uh, lots of uh, lots of drugs that do have other alternatives that we can probably, you know, switch the, the mother to, but um, things just to kind of be, and there's obviously a lot more than that, but yeah. um, definitely things to kind of keep in mind. And if you're ever not sure, just make sure that you um, pull up LexiComp or some other, you know, drug information um, resource. And I know I can speak to LexiComp because that's the one I use a lot, um, but LexiComp will have like a whole pregnancy discussion now, um, which is part of the package insert changes from the old rating scale to, to this. And we've talked about this in one of our other previous podcasts, but um, that will give you more information than you could ever hope for. And so just make sure that you uh, kind of read through that if there's any question or you're wanting to know more information about. And that's one thing effects. that makes it difficult because you, you have the whole discussion in front of you. Of course, the patient wants to know yes or no, is this safe in pregnancy? <clears throat> and it's like, well, I, I think I should give you all this information and let you make this decision as to whether you you know feel comfortable with it. I can, I can give you my, I guess, opinion, but um, yeah, it feels like with the rating system, it was a little more, it was a little more cut and dry. But that might have been the problem is that it was a little more cut and dry because there's nuance even within the quote unquote categories that they used to have. Yeah. 
So yeah, that's drugs to avoid. But other issues we have in pregnancy, um, uh, which last time we talked about pregnancy, I think my wife was pregnant. So um, I remember talking about this stuff and thinking like I was dealing with it firsthand, you know? Yeah. Um, so one is nausea and vomiting, very common in pregnancy, especially in the first trimester. Um, so uh, one drug that uh, would be considered um, first line uh, uh, by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology um, is pyridoxine. So either which is vitamin B6, uh, which is either by itself or in combination with doxylamine. So they come together in combo as a brand name called Diclegis, um, which I believe has kind of come down in price some, but it was traditionally pretty expensive, especially because vitamin B6 and doxylamine are both over-the-counter drugs in different doses that then come in Diclegis, but they could be combined um, to, uh, to create that and be a more uh, cost-effective option for patients um, and tends to work pretty well. Um, and it's safe. Uh, another one that would be considered second line behind this would be um, metoclopramide, Reglan. Um, it has the potential for extra pyramidal side effects, specifically tardive dyskinesia, which we talked about previously on the podcast. Um, so that's why it would be considered more of a second line option. Um, probably the most common one that um, gets thrown around, especially in non-pregnant patients, um, is uh, Zofran, Ondansetron. Um, but there um, are some potential concerns with it. Uh, there was a large case control study that found an increased risk of oral clefts with um, ondansetron, um, though recent studies have not shown an increase in congenital uh, anomalies. So um, do with that what you will. Yeah. Hypertension and pregnancy. Uh, there's definitely a different treatment algorithm when it comes to uh, pregnancy uh, in treating hypertension and and. So we'll kind of go through some of the meds, and then I'll give you some new data that just came out uh, January 2022, hot off the press or so. Um, kind of like we're a couple weeks late, so it's not super, <laughs> super new at this point, but it's all right. I think a couple weeks is pretty good. No, it needs to be the day before or, no, or nothing. No, um, we'll just tell everybody we're recording this the day good after the day before it came out. Right. That's good call. Cole. We just didn't release it for a few weeks. Right. It's exactly what we did. Yep. I don't even know why I brought it up. Don't even know. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> So um, hypertension in pregnancy basically defined as systolic uh, blood pressure above one, um, 140 or diastolic above 90. Um, and then, you know, that's based on two or more measurements. And, and we typically will give it some time in between those, um, sometimes even hours apart if, if possible, if, we have the, if the patient has time for all that. But, um, you know, there's also obviously the white coat hypertension and nerves that can go into uh, having a, uh, an appointment at the OB office and, you know, thinking about a new child and all that stuff like that. So we do want to get a couple measurements to make sure that at least we're seeing the blood pressure accurately. Um, so there's some, obviously some important like lifestyle changes, you know, the consider uh, the salt reduction and everything like that, but also the exercise, um, even if it's something, you know, 50 minutes of walking three days a week or so that can, um, in, reduce the incidence of hypertension, um, threefold over women who are more sedentary. So something, you know, basically Taking a walk can can keep you from having to deal with uh, hypertension during the pregnancy, um, but as far as like stress reduction or um, activity restriction, um, and you know how that improves pregnancy outcomes, there hasn't really been any good solid evidence that uh, truly shows that that helps. I mean, now in some situations where there's other things going on, other comorbidities, that may be you know different, but um, prolonged bed rest is actually in, in along with uh, Pregnant, you know, um, activity re uh, restriction and stress reduction um, in patients who are just dealing with hypertension, not talking about other 
aspects of pregnancy that could go wrong. So I'm going to make sure I make that clear. Um, but bed rest and things like that can actually uh, increase the risk of complications um, in some women, if, if especially in regards to just hypertension by itself. Related to blood pressure. Yeah. Yep. I remember being kind of being concerned um, when my wife was pregnant, like, can she, can she continue, you know, asking the OB yeah. if she could continue doing exercise or if it, if it could possibly be harmful. And I remember her telling us that the, the um the womb is like a fortress and so the baby was very safe continuing to do what whatever regular exercises that she did as long as she wasn't like doing up downs or whatever yeah which is like you know what football you jump and smack your stomach against the ground and then do a push-up and jump back up well she's usually doing like lineman type drills right, <laughs> right yeah bear crawls yeah and all no, that i can see it yeah. she, she seems like the type that's really into the, those <laughs> type of workouts her type of workout um not really. Uh, so following up on um, that, there's some preferred agents um, to use in hypertension and then some uh, in pregnancy and then some to avoid, of course. So labetalol is increasingly um, being considered kind of the go-to um, or at least used over methyl dopa because it has fewer side effects. So definitely considered a first-line agent. Um, a couple others that would be um, considered preferred would be methyl dopa. Like I mentioned, um, long-term follow-up data supports its safety. It just has some more side effects. Uh, and then nifedipine, more of a long-acting agent and, and definitely preferred. Um, other things that may be safe, uh, something else would be thiazides. Definitely not a first-line agent, but it's probably safe at lower doses if it started prior to conception, if you're using it for essential hypertension, um, but not really a first-line agent. And then, of course, you want to avoid um, ACEs, ARBs, and direct renin inhibitors. They're contraindicated, major teratogenicity, um, uh, fetal toxicity, uh, and potential death. So do not use those and make sure to stop them um, if a patient is thinking about becoming or becomes pregnant. And uh, the new data I was referring to um, that came out in January of 2022 um, was a meta-analysis that basically was looking at oral antihypertensives for non-severe pregnancy hypertension. Uh, and so they compared uh, labetalol, um, other beta blockers, methyl dopa, calcium channel blockers, and then um, like mixed or multi-drug therapy options versus placebo um, or you know each other. And so uh, what they found is that uh, basically just definitely check out the study if um, if you you know if you have the time. But um, the conclusion this is I'm just reading off the the abstract here. But in summary, the uh, all commonly prescribed antihypertensives in pregnancy reduce the risk of severe hypertension, but labetalol may also decrease um, proteinuria as well as preeclampsia um, and uh, fetal newborn death. And so the evidence is lacking from any other safety outcomes. Um, and so the the Study or the meta analysis included uh, 61 studies that were informative. 72 actually were identified all in all, and there was only 600 or 6,923 patients included, even though there was 61 studies. So it shows you how hard it is to actually, you know, have a, a high patient population in these studies, which is very understandable. But um, yeah, labetalol has some some new and and uh, decent data that has come out now. So yeah, something at least another. Another uh, win for labetalol. It's not bad. But I definitely, uh, you'll see methyl dopa still utilized a lot too. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, another common issue for uh, pregnant patients is coughs, cold, allergy type symptoms. So first line drugs um, are actually kind of what you wouldn't consider first line um, otherwise. And those could be diphenhydramine and chlorpheniramine, um, pretty sedating antihistamines. Um, loratadine and cetirizine um, can be used, but um, more during the second and third trimesters of pregnancy. Um, and if a nasal steroid is needed, budesonide and beclomethazone are going to be the safest ones. 
Um, for pain, acetaminophen is generally considered the safe thing. Um, there is an FDA investigation going on right now um, looking into a possible link between acetaminophen use in pregnancy um, and ADHD or autism in children. Um, so if, if that, I'm interested to see the results, of course, just the fact they're studying doesn't necessarily mean anything, but um, I'm yeah. interested to see what they come up with about that. Yeah, and and I will say, too, like with the antihistamines, like typically those are, um, you know, initially the second, third trimesters, like when they've utilized those, but I feel like now like they still, will, a lot of OBs will still recommend those. In the first. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to recommend against the, what I was reading, but um, I'm pretty sure Anna used the, yeah. the radithine. I think, I think at this point we will use those um, in third, first line as well. Yeah. Um, and then also just to kind of throw out there with the budesonide um, being like the recommended nasal steroid, um, that's because we're, the studies are kind of centered around that. It's not the... I, that fluticasone has been shown to have any harm or anything like that. I think it's just the safety studies have been um, surrounding budesonide and uh, beclomethazone. So I think it's one of those things that it's more so just like playing it safe because you have data to support right. it. Uh, yeah, I think she's useful in ICD. Yeah, not saying we should do what what we did, but I'm pretty sure she's useful in ICD. Yeah, you gotta you gotta And it was just because they were selling them in packs of six at Costco. What are you supposed you to do? You need to quit being so cheap. Is what, what are you, you supposed to do? This is ridiculous. <laughs> Oh, guys, you got to work on Cole's uh, frugal lifestyle. Um, but, uh, yeah, so just throw that out there just to say that it's it's not – if you're on – if you're pregnant and you're taking flunase, don't go uh, – don't think we would, we're spitting nonsense. That's yeah. – the data is just a lot of surrounded on B Yeah. Anyways, okay. So um, dealing with things like uh, uh, VTE, um, you know, patients – uh, oftentimes will be put on low molecular weight heparin um, or unfractionated heparin. Um, DOACs do not at this point have like solid safety data to where they've actually switched their recommendations. Um, I, I think there are uh, some ongoing studies and things that people are looking at and um, hopefully we'll know definitively here in the near future whether we can use those as well. But um, typically uh, enoxaparin or one of those is the, the go-to. Um, hypothyroidism, uh, levothyroxine is still the, the main uh, medication that's utilized in pregnancy. However, um, when we think about the actual dose, um, patients will oftentimes need a much higher dose uh, during pregnancy. So it can go the necessary dose to um, keep their thyroid levels normalized or is 30 to 50% higher than it was before pregnancy. Um, so that's something to kind of keep in mind if, if uh, you have a patient who's um, on those type of medications, make sure you um, uh, make sure that they have bumped up and they're monitoring the levels appropriately. Um, but if hypothyroidism is not treated during pregnancy, you know, it can definitely increase the risk of a miscarriage and um, other issues. So uh, definitely something to be monitoring and making sure that their blood work is being monitored. You know, all these newer drugs like DOACs that just don't have any data, I, like a lot of the drugs I work with are new too, and they just don't have any data. So we have to recommend against them. So I guess they're just never going to have data or do you, I mean, do they do, will they eventually do animal studies or do they just kind of leave it like no data? We're just never going to look at it. Kind of I feel like the DOACs have some data that's come out and then I have to double check myself for sure, but I'm pretty sure they've had some and I'm, I'm and is it just like people who were worth risking it and so they just do it and do case studies or could it be like people who didn't know they were pregnant and they happened to be on it for a period of time or through the first trimester or something i don't i'm just i'm interested to know when like where this data ends up coming in aftermarket you know yeah i feel like it's probably you know high risk that is um without the medication that they have risk always benefit yeah something like that or you know or benefit always risk i should say yeah i I, because i mean i feel like if it's just um more so like retrospective, it'd be a lot harder to 
use that data to actually justify the recommendations and stuff. But right. I don't know. I, I'm also answering. I feel qu- like we could get some animal studies here. You know yeah. what I'm saying? I also, like, give me something. Like, I, like, I just start answering questions I don't really know the answer to. I'm just, yeah, I, what I feel <laughs> is that it's probably based on my like, extensive knowledge of <laughs> clinical studies. We're just presuming. Yeah. So I don't know. I have to look into that. But that's, yeah. I, I definitely think that uh, I, I am pretty sure that DOAC studies are being looked at. Okay, so hyperthyroidism. So Mike talked about hypo. Um, in general, mild cases may not need to be treated. Um, it's, if possible, normalize the mother's thyroid function prior to pregnancy. Um, if drug treatment is necessary in instances like Graves' disease, um, propothiouracil um, and methimazole are the two drugs to use, but at specific times during the pregnancy. Um, PTU is preferred during the first trimester, and then methimazole is preferred during the second and third trimesters. Um, and of course, always use reputable sources when checking for interactions um, and medication use in pregnant women. Um, there's a variety of them. Briggs drugs in pregnancy and lactation is one. Um, there's also a, um, a LactMed app, LactMed, um, which is, um, is it put out by the NIH? I... Or is that just where you find it? I, I, it's definitely the link to it, but I'd have to look for well, sure. Well, it seems pretty trustworthy to me. I used it all the time. It's it's for breastfeeding, but um, I used it all the time. Yeah. American Academy of Pediatrics um, has recommendations in American College of um, Obstetrics and Gynecologists as well. Yeah. Definitely check your resources. Don't use your core consult uh, podcast for <laughs> your sole resource when it comes to pregnancy. <laughs> use the really good stuff. But uh, all right, so. Um, that's some highlights. If you want more information on different uh, things we've covered for patients who are pregnant, make sure you check out that. We have a whole podcast episode on that, so check that out. Um, let's talk about patients who um, are at a increased risk for having a bleed, because um, I think it's something that we've run into a lot. Um, patients that are on DOAX or you know warfarin or whatever, anoxaparin, um, you know things we have to kind of consider and think about when it comes to. Um, you know, they're already at a bleed risk, obviously, anytime they're on a blood thinner. Um, and then when you talk about anything else that could uh, increase that risk, we want to avoid if possible. So the obvious thing like antiplatelet drugs. Now, there are situations where a patient may be on an antiplatelet medication or aspirin and an antiplatelet medication. Like if they've you know just had a cabbage or a stent placed and then they also have uh, AFib and, then, and they have a high... Um, stroke risk because of that. And so they are on anticoagulation as well. I have seen patients that are on all three before. It's a little shocking to see it. And the blood, the, the bleed risk is very high, but, um, in some cases they may be on all three. So if you do see that, just get some more information. Don't assume it's craziness coming from the cardiologist, but, uh, uh, NSAIDs and SSRIs are uh, another kind of thing to consider, not necessarily a, a huge risk, depending on what the patients, you know, actually taking as far as the, the anticoagulation or um, therapy, but uh, NSAIDs basically are going to help kind of, or decrease the, the platelet aggregation and, and increase, could potentially increase the bleed risk slightly. SSRIs, uh, same kind of thing. If, if, if we think about like platelets in general, they have this dense granule um, that stores you know, multiple things that are involved with signaling during platelet a- aggregation. So, you know, they store uh, ATP, they store free calcium, um, and they also store serotonin. Uh, they also have like the alpha granule that has like von Willebrand factor and fibrinogen and some other things, um, platelet factor four, all that good stuff. But the dense granule does not have a way of actually 
producing or, or making its own serotonin. So it actually has to take that uh, from the environment and, and store it in the dense granule. So as your serotonin levels are available, that brings that in, stores it, and then it's ready to be used whenever it needs to. When you have a patient who's on an SSRI and you have basically um, blocked the presynaptic like reabsorption, a reuptake of serotonin, that activity actually plays a role with the dense granule as well and keeps the serotonin from being able to be um, transported inside the dense granule. So it's one of those things that uh, when we're thinking about, you know, just in general, SSRIs and bleed risk and all that, it's usually very low risk. But if a patient is already on multiple medications, it could cause it. It'd be something to at least think about right. um, and, you know, be aware of. It's not usually clinically relevant, but it is something to consider. Um, same with NSAIDs. You know, you've got to be careful outweigh the you – know, see if the, the – risk um, outweighs the benefit or vice versa and um, just make sure that at least the patient's aware and watching for signs of and symptoms of bleeding. Um, herbal supplements are always the one that I think of is a big risk. And it's not just like the drug-drug interactions, but it could also just be like decreasing in the platelet aggregation and other aspects of the clotting process. But some of the herbals to remember, uh, the, the big kind of category I think of is the, the G's. Um, so ginger, garlic, ginkgo, ginseng, um, those type of things. Grape can, juice. Yeah. No. Uh, wait, I was going to say, wait, <laughs> that's not right. Um Anyways, thanks, Cole. Just totally threw me off. <laughs> yeah, but uh, so the the G's, and then also um, turmeric, um, fenugreek, uh, evening primrose. There's some other common herbal supplements, especially when it comes to um, like uh, fenugreek and evening primrose and things like that. Can be you know involved with uh, lactation and things like that. And so sometimes uh, if if a patient's on um, taking those along with some sort of anticoagulation or, um, you know, whatever the therapy they're on, that, that can increase the bleed risk as well. So at least something to consider and, and warn patients about. Yeah, especially because it's not usually reported and, and pop up on the EMR to do an interaction check and whatnot. Yep. Um, so uh, that was bleed risk. So um, there's also with AFib, we have to calculate a um, stroke risk, and this helps us decide whether we're going to um, anticoagulate a patient um, who has AFib. So there's a score that we've talked about on the podcast before called the CHADS VASC score or the CHADS 2 VASC, CHADS 2 VASC score or the CHAD 2 VASC score. Um, yeah, it used to be different, but it's not anymore. So each um, letter is an acronym that stands for something that's going to assign an amount of points um, and uh, with a score of greater than 2, equal to greater than or equal to 2 in men or greater than or equal to 3 in women. Um, this would um, recommend anticoagulation. So the C is congestive heart failure. The H is hypertension, blood pressure over 140, over 90. Um, I wonder if that'll ever be updated. Or change. Over one. Yeah. 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 I don't, probably not, but it's interesting. Um, age 75 years or older gets two points. Diabetes, um, stroke, or TIA gets two points. Vascular disease, um, age of 65 to 74 gets one point. Uh, and then um, sex category is the S. Um, and uh, female gets an automatic point. Yeah, and that's obviously sex given at birth, not uh, you know. Always double check that as well. Obviously, if you have a patient that is, um, you know, trans or something like that, you may you do want to make sure that you've, it's it's the sex assigned at birth is what they're this is referring to. I don't know if they. I, I'm assuming is that why uh, they put the clunky name in there of sex category instead of. Uh, I'm trying to think of another way they could have done it to where it could have been a less clunky name for it. But. I don't know. I don't know. I I, I, want, I actually want to go back and look and see if they've reworded that. I could see that somebody getting irritated by that. Yeah. But anyways. as far as we know, it's still Chad's Vasque. Yeah. 
Yep, yep. Um, remember when it used to be just the Chad score? Yes, it used to just be. That's the, what I learned in school. And were there any twos in there too, or was there always twos? I think the twos uh, was for stroke. Was still because it was like Chad's. Yeah. Uh, two after the S. Yeah. But uh, and two after the initial A. Maybe yeah, I don't remember. See, I don't remember that one. That's, yeah, right. It was always the Chad's two vask if they had to like say it the whole thing. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I was like Chad two two vask. <laughs> I don't know. I have to go. I I was just mad that. Halfway through my pharmacy curve school, they added career, like five extra they, like, letters. Changed you had to it learn. Out. Like, yeah. hey, remember what you guys learned? Don't worry about that anymore. Yeah, we'll worry about that plus four extra letters. So, uh, all right, um, atrial fibrillation. Uh, obviously, this is where this comes in, like Cole was saying. Uh, but just to kind of recap, with uh, we've talked about this in other studies or um, other episodes rather, but a lot of the studies that have have come out have basically um, justified using the DOAX uh, instead of warfarin to alleviate that that risk, and that's pretty much the name of the game is just trying to find as many ways possible to keep that risk as low as possible. Um, we do not want our patients bleeding out. That's not ideal. Right. And kind of going along with that, you can calculate a has bled score, which is another acronym. Um, I won't go through the whole thing. I'll just give you some tidbits about it, but um, it, it doesn't necessarily give you a specific number that says right here, you, you know, your has blood score is too high to anticoagulate. It's more just a guide to show you patients who may be um, at increased risk. So um, hypertension, abnormal renal or liver function, stroke, bleeding, um, label INRs, elderly age, and then drugs or alcohol. All of those can give points one or two um, to increase your um, has blood score up to nine. And um, in general, um, so like a has blood score of one, for instance, um, about one, just barely over one patient per 100 patients, so about 1% of patients um, um, may have a bleed, and then at a, at a has blood score of five, that goes all the way up to 12.5 patients per 100. Um, so it kind of um, increases, especially when you hit the has blood score of three, it really starts to increase pretty significantly um, to their, their bleed risk. All right, so let's cover pregnancy, cover patients who are at a bleed risk. Yep, metabolism and excretion. Yep, let's talk uh, real quick about some drug-induced kidney damage potential or kidney injuries. Um, So we've always – when we think about like an acute kidney injury or drug-induced kidney injury, uh, you know – the surface level, we kind of just kind of lump all that together, but there's actually several different kind of subcategories of that. So they have like tubular epithelial cell damage um, that can be a result of certain medications, like the aminoglycosides are usually in that group, um, uh, or amphotericin B, cyclosporin, some of those type of meds um, can be uh, you know, tenofovir is another one, the old version, especially disoprosal fumarate. Um, but those that's more on the tubular injury or necrosis. Um, there's also some osmotic nephropathy that can happen with like drugs like mannitol um, or uh, dextran, um, IV immunoglobulin. Um, and then when we think about the hemodynamically mediated kidney injury, I feel like that's the one that we typically think about when it comes to like primary care type stuff. Um, that's where your ACEs, ARBs, your SGLT2 inhibitors, your NSAIDs, that's where that risk could potentially um, come into play. And so since there's so many different kind of ways we could take this and we only have a limited amount of time, I did think one of the important things to bring up was um, ACEs and ARBs and like instance of uh, an acute kidney injury um, after starting one. So one of the things that we've kind of, you know, we've mentioned this on the podcast and whatnot, but just in case you're new to us, you know, the, the ACEs and ARBs, you know, are nephroprotective. And so that's something that we um, have kind of drilled in, into our heads as far as that. But then it also sounds very counterintuitive to, hey, we got to monitor for a kidney injury after starting one of these agents. And so it's something that 
Um, it, it basically has to do with, with the intraglomerular pressure um, as far as the dilation of the afferent and efferent arterioles. We won't get into some of the patho and stuff right now, but um, you can basically decrease some of that um, that pressure and, and it can lower the abilities, the, the kidney's ability to kind of filter uh, and, and, and the EGFR goes down and serum creatinine usually goes up. Um, it's, it's not always just directly from the ACR. That can be kind of a, a, a precipitating, I guess, you know, thing that's added to the mix, but usually it's also also uh, accompanied by dehydration and other issues. And, you know, we, we do expect a patient's serum creatinine to kind of be increased from baseline whenever they start a ACE or ARB. Um, we, we would expect it to go 15, maybe even 20%, um, but 30% or higher from the patient's baseline. And I think that's a important kind of distribution. Uh, differentiating like fact that I know we've mentioned before, but just to kind of hit home, um, even if the patient's a, uh, you know, serum creatinine is, is pretty elevated at, at baseline, it's 30% up, um, increased serum creatinine from their baseline, not a set baseline or anything like that. So I, if you have a patient with chronic kidney disease, um, does not mean that they're not a candidate for an ACE arm. In fact, we want them to be, um, on an ACE or ARB ideally. And so, um, there's a study from New England Journal of Medicine back in 20, uh, or 20, yeah, 2006, um, I believe. And it's the, it doesn't have a cool name, unfortunately, but it's the efficacy and safety of benazapril for advanced, um, chronic renal insufficiency. And what they were doing is basically taking benazapril versus placebo and these patients who had, um, you know, really end stage, uh, or, or at least stage four in some categories, uh, um, kidney disease. And so, um, if you look at like the baseline, some of they had one group that's, uh, the baseline serum creatinine was as high as five, um, uh, which is <laughs> quite up there. And so, uh, when they what they basically saw was that um, the outcome they were looking for was the creatinine doubling the end stage renal disease or death was the primary composite, and when you compare um, the benazapril to placebo, uh, benazapril decreased significantly um, the risk of of that primary outcome, and the number needed to treat was only five um, in those patients. So. Definitely a uh, a valuable asset to have on board. Um, you know, in fact, if you're really, if we have a patient who has an AKI with an ACRB, a lot of times we end up giving hydration and and then rechallenging the ACRB if possible, uh, because we do know that they can be nephroprotective and all that good stuff long term. Yep. So, um, just wanted to reiterate that if it's if something you haven't thought about in a while, because I think that's an important uh, thing to kind of keep in mind. I agree. Um, but yeah, so uh, I think the other big one we had, because uh, there's other, you know, tubular interstitial disease and chronic interstitial nephritis and all kinds of other things, um, you know, they can kind of be some patho behind the the drug-induced renal disease or an AKI or whatnot. But I think the other kind of big one is, is NSAIDs. Cole, um, do you want to check on that? you want to jump on it? Uh, yeah. So um, I'll, I'll do my best to try to explain this. Uh, help me out if I start to fail. But um, so NSAIDs uh, can initiate an AKI, and it's kind of related to COX-2 or cyclooxygenase. So NSAIDs inhibit cyclooxygenase, catalyze synthesis of vasodilatory prostaglandins, including prostaglandins I2, which is prostacyclin you may have heard of, and E2 from arachidonic acid. And we talked about this before um, on the podcast previously as well. But um, the prostaglandins are synthesized in the renal cortex and the medulla by vascular endothelial and glomerular mesangial cells. Um, their effects are primarily local, um, but they result 
result in a net afferent arteriolar vasodilation, right? So similar to kind of what we were talking about, a little bit different actually than what we were talking about with the, um, with the ACEs and ARs, but talking about the afferent arteriole, the net vasodilation. So the vasodilatory prostaglandins have limited activity in states of normal renal blood flow, but in states of decreased renal blood flow, their synthesis is increased and they serve a, a pretty vital autoregulatory role um, in the protection against renal ischemia, um, hypoxia, because they antagonize the renal arteriolar vasoconstriction from angiotensin II, norepinephrine, and vasopressin, those three. Um, so you give an NSAID in the setting of reduced renal blood flow, it'll blunt the usual compensatory increase in prostaglandin activity. This alters the normal autoregulatory balance in favor of renal vasoconstrictors, thereby promoting renal ischemia and reduction in glomerular filtration, causing the acute kidney injury. Did you follow that? That was a mouthful. That was a mouthful. Did I pronounce everything correctly? I think so. I thought I did. So just, and this is a study that doesn't have a ton to do with this, but I do want to just mention a couple points from it. Um, the precision study was looking at uh, basically cardiovascular safety um, of celecoxib, naproxen, and ibuprofen for patients with arthritis. And uh, one of the things that they were looking for, the, the cardiovascular safety is the primary outcome, but one of the other things they reported was the adverse effects for um, serious GI events and renal events. And when you compare the different classes to each other, specifically naproxen and acelacoxib was the one that I always I spent the most time kind of looking at because I always thought of those as being two uh, that could potentially decrease the risk of cardiovascular disease compared to other NSAIDs. But uh, what they found is that the renal events were actually the same in both groups. There was not a statistical difference. So it's one of those things that uh, – you know, we, we don't have to worry as much, or at least we don't use the COX-2 inhibitor, um, specifically thinking that you're going to negate those, uh, renal risks. Um, they're going to, it's in that same group of, of concerns there that we would have. So just make sure that, uh, you kind of keep that in mind. Um, naproxen, silicox, any of those that if the patient already has renal disease and, and is dehydrated a lot, we, something that we would want to be careful with. Right. Right. All right. So the last thing we'll kind of talk about is some drug-induced liver disease or liver injuries. Um, there's various types of this as well. Um, the two that we'll touch on um, is the autoimmune um, injuries. It is basically antibody-mediated cytotoxicity or um, so, uh, direct cellular toxicity, basically. Um, and this can happen from uh, a couple different ways, um, you know, involving the auto, autoimmune sort of path, but um, there's like antibody-mediated cytotoxicity, like I said, and a lot of the, the common drugs that we would think about with that would be um, uh, sulfamethoxazole, uh, carbamazepine, some fluoroquinolones, and then also the TNF-alpha inhibitors. Uh, and then we also have some drugs that can basically cause a type of autoimmune injury specifically uh, to the liver called the uh, chronic active hepatitis. Um, and some of the culprits for that would be dantrolene, um, isoniazid, phenytoin, nitrofurantoin, uh, trazodone, and methyl dopa. Uh, it's, again, not super common or anything like that, but it, it can happen, and those are the drugs associated with it. Um, if a patient, if you have a suspicion of chronic kind of active um chronic active hepatitis, usually the patient's like symptoms get severe, like the hepatitis symptoms get severe and then they go away and they come back again. It's just kind of like a cyclical pattern. Um, also patients will, um, a lot of times have, uh, anti-nuclear antibodies or ANA, um, which is one of the things we look for in, uh, autoimmune disorders. And, um, 
so if you run you know, rheumatoid labs on a patient that's positive, that might be indicative of chronic active hepatitis. Um, if their other symptoms match, the other thing about this specific subcategory is that the diagnosis can be pretty difficult because a lot of times it you basically have to let the person have a. Or, or at least in their history, have long um, or multiple episodes because of the long exposure to certain medications. So the, the good thing is we don't have to worry about this a lot because uh, most of these drugs are not going to be used long term. Uh, phenytoin um, is one that exception, and methyl dope is an exception. But you know, one of those things that uh, hopefully we just can use some better drugs if possible anyway. Um, especially with meth, unless you're pregnant with meth, methyl dope is not really utilized in hypertension nearly as much as you know, some of the other agents. So just something to think about. Um, And then there's also idiosyncratic drug-related hepatotoxicity, which, you know, can be rare, but, um, you know, it's oftentimes, it's basically like an allergic reaction uh, to the drug and that that leads, that itself, that reaction, hypersensitivity reaction leads to the hepatotoxicity. Um, So a lot of times if if there is an allergic component, you'll have elevated uh, eosinophils and granulomas um, and then also uh, fever, rash, things like that. Um, and it's, it's usually kind of a dose related situation. And a lot of times, um, patients will, you know, be on the medication for less than a month when they have it. Sometimes it's, it's days. Um, uh, so there's just some, uh, to mention, uh, minocycline, nitrofurantoin, phenytoin again, um, uh, augmentin, Bactrim, ACEs, and then allopurinol. Um, and a lot of these are basically due to changes in the human leukocyte antigen or HLA phenotypes. Um, and that, that can really put a patient at risk, um, depending on any changes, like any different, um, or, uh, mutations that, that specific alleles, um, that can, uh, put a patient's susceptibility and, you know, how severe the re- the reaction is, um, in the liver to that, um, particular drug. So allopurinol is the one that I always think about that if you, if you look at some of the, uh, the, pre-treatment things to do. If you can do the uh, HLA allele genotype testing, that's actually something they say would be ideal, but just yeah. n- it never actually gets done in most right. cases. But uh, yeah, it's very, very rare thing, um, but it can happen. Um, and there's also the non-allergic um, component too that's that can cause hepatotoxicity that is idiosyncratic. And uh, amiodarone, isoniazid, and ketoconazole are the three big ones to think about there. But yeah. So there's just a few. There's also more, uh, you know, things to consider with hepatotoxicity as well, just like with um, nephro. But just some kind of things to worry about. Uh, if you have a patient who you're worried about um, severe, you know, hepato dysfunction or cirrhosis and all that, then make sure you uh, calculate a child's P score. Um, there's all kinds of good uh, apps. I think we talked about one on our hepatitis C um, podcast episode we did on. Uh, the Hep Calc mm-hmm. um, yeah. app that you can get for a few bucks. Um, that's got all the different um, kind of uh, calculations that are available for various hepato disease states. But uh, yeah, so kind of keep that in mind because a lot of drugs will have um, some issues with uh, you know that depending on the patient's liver function. If they're ever considering you know whether or not there's a, a is a potential for drug induced liver injury with the medication or supplement or herbal supplement that you're about to use, um, liver tox is a very good source of information, and uh, that's definitely one I would recommend checking out. One of the one of the things I hear a lot about like um, toxicities metformin, and people think in my page I don't know why this is like so commonly talked about. This one time I used this app was to double check myself because I kept having so many patients bring up um, that. Oh man, you know, so and so told me it's bad for my liver, and I and at first I was like, no, it's not. And then I, I had I heard it from so many people that I was like, I need to look this and see where this is coming from. But it's, um, 
there's been almost it's extremely rare to even have uh any kind of el- like elevated liver enzymes from that and in fact sometimes they actually they go down with uh metformin so um i've very... heard it i've heard that on multiple occasions too i wonder where that comes from i'm wondering if it has to do with like fenformin when that was on the market what did um, it have issues with the liver i thought it was with the that's lactic with the lactic acidosis but i'm wondering if that's partly where it is or like, if people are just that's you know just... what we need to do huh we need to call 1-800 bad drug and we need to see what they're telling people. You seen those commercials and uh-huh, stuff? Uh-huh. Oh, it's 1-800 like one eight hundred bad drug. Yeah, well, you know, that's just a, a joking example. But you know, there will be a commercial about like metformin and a class action lawsuit because uh-huh. of some sort of thing. It's always like call one eight hundred bad drug and should do to, that. to get in your with your class action lawsuit. So we need to figure out what they're telling people because that's probably. I mean, that's got to be where this stuff's coming from, right? I would imagine. Yeah. Either that or the person's neighbor who. Just needed any excuse not to take my form. It's the same neighbor that's telling everybody. Maybe. <laughs> Everyone's got the neighbor that's an expert on drug therapy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Anything else we got for this, Cole? I feel like we just did five episodes in one. Did we? Yeah, we kind of did. Yeah. I, uh, I I wasn't uh, I wasn't keeping track of time, so I'm pretty sure we're over. But no, it's fine. we'll wrap it up uh, now. So, you guys, thanks for sticking with us. I appreciate it. Um, make sure if you've, you know – once you've obviously signed up for uh, freeseed.com, make sure you go take that post, uh, post-podcast post test and uh, all that good stuff and um, get your credit. Renew your license so you can keep working. That's that's uh, Patients need you, so make sure you get that done. Um, let us know if you have any feedback or anything we can do better for these uh, continuing ed type uh, episodes. And um, we definitely want you guys to feel like you're getting something out of them and utilizing this uh, relatively new uh, platform for continuing education. So, yeah, appreciate you guys listening. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Let us know if you have any questions or concerns. Our emails will be in the show notes or any of the social media platforms. You can get in touch with us. And, uh, yeah, we will catch you guys in the next episode. Have a great night.